Good morning, everybody. I want to begin with a question this morning, and that is, how many of you are still under construction when it comes to walking in love? How many are still under construction? Yeah, not, not perfected in love yet. Rob's got two hands in the air. Yeah, so I'll begin with a story. It was Christmas Eve, maybe many years ago, and um, Laura and I had worked hard to get our small children, you know, calmed down and ready for bed. And they were in bed and hopefully sleeping, and we had stuffed the stockings, and um, everything was all set, and I was so looking forward to my warm bed. It was about midnight, and I knew that the kids would be up at six in the morning wanting their gifts, and uh, right at that moment, the phone rang, and a, an acquaintance of mine was in crisis. She was having a, a mental health breakdown at a gas station all the way across town, and for some reason she thought of, of me, and um, I realized at that hour, she probably, I probably couldn't find anybody else to do this. And so I made a decision to do my best to walk in love and to minister to her that night. So I went and picked her up and took her to the emergency room. And um, on the way home in the car, after a, quite a long stay in the emergency room, she fell asleep and started snoring. And I just, I just kind of cracked up at that moment and thought, Lord, this is just so you. Um, and my heart was uh, knitted to her in that moment. And so out of that thing that I didn't want to happen, um, God blessed me with a great friendship with her. Um, and so in that situation, Thank God I was able to walk in love uh, and have a good time, even though I only got a couple hours sleep that night. On the other hand, um, over a month ago, Laura and I went to the cabin, our, our retreat place, our hidey hole, if you will. And I decided, you know, I, I have to watch my weight uh, quite carefully or it'll take off on me. Well, at the cabin, I decided you know what, I'm just tired of being disciplined. We're only going to be here for a couple weeks. I'm going to eat whatever I want. And my guilty pleasure on vacation, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, is uh, spray cheese out of a can. <laughs> and uh, to make matters worse, it really tastes best on Ritz crackers. And you kind of make a double-decker sandwich, you know, and then pop the whole thing in your mouth. You hear me, brother, don't you? Uh, and uh, so I just went to town, and, um, and then there was ice cream, of course, you know, and brownies and all kinds of other things. And in about 16 days, I, I gained 12 pounds. Yeah, you, I, I'm not sure that's humanly possible, but it happened. And uh, I'm still working that off. So even though I came home from vacation walking in love, it was more of a, a waddle 
you know. At least it felt like that. Well, this morning, I want to talk about self-control and discipline. And, and specifically, I want to talk about the relationship between discipline and love and how there's a deep connection between the two. Um, the Apostle Paul said this, for the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So that's what the Lord is moving us toward, is greater and greater love. Love is the first in the list of the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. Another great verse to get there, uh, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And isn't that true? We have to make a decision each morning to follow the Lord or we just sort of get on autopilot and then eventually we lose our goals and our discipline. A third verse says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, giving himself up for us and offering an offering and sacrifice to God. The word discipline can conjure up uh, negative uh, thoughts in us. For example, a cruel teacher or an abusive parent maybe, or uh, being mistreated by an authority figure. But there's a um, Catholic author named Michael Kelly who says to think about discipline this way. He says, try to set that over-demanding notion of discipline aside and think of the discipline an athlete freely chooses to bring the best out of himself or herself. Nobody can give you discipline, and discipline is a gift we give ourselves. Every aspect of the human person thrives on discipline, and relationships are no different. Discipline is the price life demands for happiness. Discipline is the road that leads to fullness of life. The Apostle Paul used this same metaphor of an athlete in 1 uh, Corinthians 9.25 when he said, And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to, to achieve an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Other scriptures that talk about discipline talk about apply, applying our heart to discipline, being trained by it, uh, not to run from it, but to turn into my discipline in Proverbs 1, verse 23. And the promise is, I will pour out my spirit upon you and thankfully, it's also listed as a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Meaning God will help us with it. He's involved in helping us with it. Thank God. Well, in this message, we're going to see that without discipline, there's no capacity to love. 
Um, without discipline, self-control, you can't grow in righteousness. Without self-discipline, you will get picked off by the enemy. And without self-discipline, you cannot live a successful Christian life. But with self-discipline, we become free to love deeply and well and walk in love. The scriptures say that when we're trained by it, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it also says that the, right of the, the, the root of the righteous will never be moved. Isn't that wonderful? Here's a picture of a beautiful tree that must have incredible roots that go down deep into the soil. And so the title of this message is, Without Discipline, There Is No Love. So how do we get, how do we uh, foster greater self-discipline in our lives? I'd like to dig down deep into this question and look at the parable of the sower and the seed. Uh, paying particular attention to the rocky soil in contrast to the good soil. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke 8, starting in verse 4. Again, that's Luke 8, starting in verse 4. And we're going to be trying to compare the rocky soil with the good soil. And when a great multitude were coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to see Jesus, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And other seed fell on the good soil, and it grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus was asking his hearers to ponder their heart, the soil of their heart. Would it be receptive to his message? And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, To you has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest of us it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil, let's pay a special attention to this verse, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but these have no firm root in themselves. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And again, pay special attention to verse 15. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and, what, hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. 
begin verse 6, he describes the rocky soil, saying that as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And then in verse 13, when he's explaining to the disciples, he says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but these have no firm root in themselves. Actually, the two words in themselves is not in Luke, but it's in the other accounts of this parable. It's in Matthew and Mark. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Charles Spurgeon described this phrase. I want to talk about this phrase, no firm root in themselves. And think about what does that mean? It's kind of a mysterious phrase of Jesus. No firm root in themselves. Charles Spurgeon said that this phrase refers to shallow character. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, uh, who we all, well, many of us love to listen to, uh, back when we were milkmen and delivering milk on the North Shore of uh, Minnesota. Um, he said that these believers are like burned out Roman candles or paper in the wind. All enthusiastic until there's work to be done and then they're nowhere to be found. Matthew Henry said they have no root in themselves, no settled, fixed, principles in their judgments, no firm resolution in their wills, nor any rooted habits in their affections, nothing firm that will be either the sap or strength of their profession. So these people celebrate the gospel, but they can't withstand adversity or temptation or strong wind or rain. But by contrast, in verse 15, we see that the soil of the good heart has the ability to hold it fast, cling to it. This is a strong, intensive Greek word that means to seize and retain or to lay hold upon. Uh, it means to be strong, to be mighty, to prevail. The good soil dedicates itself to enter into the fight of the gospel uh, to face adversity and temptation. Back to Michael Kelly, the Catholic author, he uses a, a slightly different expression to talk about the same thing, I believe, as the firm root in oneself. And his, his expression is possession of the self. Let me uh, show you what he means by that. He says, love is the essence of life, but in order to love, you must be free, for to love is to give yourself to someone or something freely. It is as if you could take the essence of your very self in your hands and give it to another person. Yet to give yourself, you must first possess yourself. And I, I equate this with have a firm root in yourself. This possession of self is a prerequisite for love and is attained only through discipline. This is why so very few relationships thrive in our day and time. The very nature of love requires self-possession. Without self-mastery, self-control, 
self-dominion, we are incapable of love. We want to love, but without self-possession, we are simply unable to do so because we are not free. We don't possess ourselves, and so we cannot give ourselves to another. As a result, we preoccupy ourselves with all the externals of relationships and call those love. Does that make sense to you? In other words, if you don't have, uh, let me put it this way. Imagine a young couple is up here getting married. Uh, well, let's do this. Imagine two couples are up here getting married at the same time. One of the couples, you know that both of them have strong character. They know who they are. They have firm convictions about life and firm values. And they're making a promise that they will love each other until they both are no more on this earth. That promise, you have a sense that that promise has a good chance of holding. But couple B over here, you sense that they are very immature. They don't have that firmness of conviction about who they are. They don't have a self to give each other uh, because they're just paper in the wind. You know, they're drawn here and there. And they're making a promise that they will uh, cling tightly to each other for the rest of their lives. You know, you, you have some skepticism about will they really, will they really make it because they haven't sort of, they have that, they don't have that firmness of character about who they are themselves. And so they have little to give away. The good soil wants to give love rather than take, take it from all these various sources. So again, the discipline we're talking about this morning is not a discipline or punishment executed from outside by a higher authority, but it's a discipline of the self that is chosen willingly because of the surpassing value of serving Jesus Christ. This choice, though, involves suffering, doesn't it? When we decide to follow Jesus Christ, we run counter to the world, and so it involves some suffering. And in another place, Jesus said this, narrow is the path and hard is the way that leads to life and few are those who find it. Lately I picked up a book that I haven't read for a long time and it just was ringing all my bells and uh, I'm going to rely on it heavily now for the next few minutes in this message and it's the book by Dr. Scott Peck called The Road Less Traveled. How many of you remember this book in your Christian reading over the years? Um, very insightful. Um, I suspect that Dr. Peck had this verse in mind in 1978 when he wrote this book. He writes that there are four key disciplines that must be learned by a person to be successful in life. And for Christians, we can amplify these disciplines as necessary to successfully follow Christ. The four disciplines are the discipline of delayed gratification, 
taking personal responsibility for the problems we face in life, a dedication to truth and the realities of life as they are, and then balancing, meaning a capacity to be flexible, adaptable, including the ability to let something go sometimes that otherwise you wouldn't. Let's look at each one of these in turn. The first one is the discipline of delayed gratification. And let me read to you an excerpt that he writes about this. He says, delaying gratification is the process of scheduling the pain and pleasure of life in such a way as to enhance the pleasure by meeting and experiencing the pain first and getting it over with. It's the only decent way to live, he says. This tool or process of scheduling is learned by most children quite early in life, sometimes as early as age five. For instance, occasionally a five-year-old when playing a game with a companion will suggest that the companion take their turn first so that the child might enjoy his or her turn later. At age six, children may start eating their cake first and their frosting last. So I'm tempted to ask how many of you still eat your frosting first? Oh, Jason. Oh, Jason. <laughs> Throughout grammar school, this early capacity to delay gratification is daily exercised, particularly through the performance of homework. By the age of 12, some children are already able to sit down on occasion without any parental prompting and complete their homework before they watch television. By the age of 15 or 16, such behavior is expected of the adolescent as it, and is considered normal. It becomes clear to the educators at this age, however, that a substantial number of adolescents fall far short of this norm. Did my mic cut out there? This one? Okay. Is Barb, is somebody? Don't get it. Um, while many have a well-developed capacity to delay gratification, some 15 or 16-year-olds seem to have hardly developed this capacity at all. Indeed, some seem even to lack the capacity entirely. These are the problem students. Despite average or better intelligence, their grades uh, uh, are poor simply because they do not work. They skip classes or skip school entirely on the whim of the moment. They are impulsive, and their impulsiveness spills over into their social life as well. They begin to get in trouble, and their motto is, play now, pay later. So the psychologists and psychotherapists are called in, but most of the time it seems too late. So Caleb, can I go to this now? Okay. I was ministering to a uh, family here in town where there were all three individuals under the same roof were on social security disability. And um, as I was visiting them and it came time for me to leave, they asked me for money. And uh, I said, well, why are you out of money? You know, and they said, well, it's the end of the month. And I said, yeah, but 
I mean, don't you plan to have enough money by the end of the month to get by? And they said, well, yes, but uh, we went to the casino. And uh, I said, well, I can't loan you any money or give you any money if you're going to go blow it at the casino. But isn't that a great example of play now, pay later? If you think about it, the whole Christian life is an exercise in delayed gratification, isn't it? Uh, Here are some verses. If we are God's children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We live for that future life. We love this life to to an extent, but we live uh, saying no to ourselves for many things so that we might have a full yes from our master when we get to heaven. Therefore, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. The discipline of delayed gratification is essential to successful living, and for the successful Christian, we require not only a high school diploma, not only a BA, not only a master's, but definitely a doctorate at some level in this issue of delayed gratification. The second one is taking personal responsibility for the problems we face in life. When we face our problems head on, as the problems we are facing, we grow stronger. Um, We find solutions through the Holy Spirit and good counsel. But when we try to avoid the pain inherent in real problems that we face, what do we do? What do people do who can't or don't want to um, face the pain of the real problems they're facing? Sometimes they will make up other problems and become consumed with those so they don't have to face the real problem. But the most common uh, thing we do is we blame others, don't we? So-and-so is the problem, not me. But uh, Dr. Peck tells a story of a, of a sergeant with a drinking problem that I'd like to read to you as an example of someone who is not taking responsibility for their problem of drinking. He says, we can solve life's problems. We cannot solve life's problems except by solving them. I can solve a problem only when I say, this is my problem, and it's up to me to solve it. But many, so many, seek to avoid the pain of their problems by saying to themselves, this problem was caused me by other people or social circumstances beyond my control, and therefore it's up to other people or society to solve this problem. So he goes on to say, a career sergeant in the Army stationed in Okinawa and in serious trouble because of his excessive drinking was referred to me for evaluation and, if possible, assistance. He denied that he was an alcoholic or even that his use of alcohol was a personal problem, saying, there's nothing else to do in the evenings in Okinawa except drink. So uh, Dr. Peck said, do you like to read? He said, oh, yes, I like to read, sure. Then why don't you read in the evening instead of drinking? 
Ah, it's too noisy to read in the barracks. Well, then why don't you go to the library? The library is too far away. Is the library farther away than the bar you go to? Well, I'm not much of a reader. That's not where my interests lie. Do you like to fish? I then required. Sure, I love to fish. Why don't you go fishing instead of drinking? Because I have to work all day long. Can't you go fishing at night? No, there isn't any night fishing in Okinawa. But there is, I said. I know several organizations that fish at night here. Would you like me to put you in touch with them? Well, I really don't like to fish. So what I hear you saying is that there are other things to do in Okinawa except drink, but the thing you like to do most in Okinawa is drink. Yeah, I guess so. But your drinking is getting you in trouble, so you're faced with a real problem, aren't you? This damn island would drive anyone to drink. And on and on. He drink, his drinking continued, and he was separated from the service in mid-career. Contrast that with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not wanting to go to the cross. That was a real problem. He had to go to the cross to fulfill his Father's will, and he knew that it would be awful. And yet he faced that problem head on. He resisted his own will to the point of sweating great drops of blood. He didn't blame God or others. In fact, when he was on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an example he gave us in facing problems head on. A third critical discipline is a radical dedication to truth and the reality of life as it is. Jesus said to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. And if you remember in verse 15 of our text, the very first thing Jesus highlighted about the good soil of a good heart is that it was what? Do you remember? Honest. A good heart, a good soil is honest. And I would add honest with itself. Think about this. A truly truthful person looks inside and sees the evil there in their own heart. And an honest heart knows that it needs a savior. They recognize, we recognize our inability to change our fundamental nature. I think that this is what Jesus meant when he said an honest and good heart. In verse 12 of our text, what is the, uh, how does the devil come and take away the word that is in their heart? This is the, the seed that falls along the roadside or along the path. It just says that the birds of the air, meaning the devil, come and take away those seeds, that word. But how does the devil do that? Have you ever thought about that? How does he, how does he convince someone who's hearing the gospel to turn away from it, to not receive it. Um, I think it's what he always does. He lies. He's the father of lies, right? And so here are some of the things he might tell, tell you. You're a good person. You're, you're not such a bad person, Bill. You're, you're a good person. 
you, you can fix yourself, right? Or, you can, yeah, you can better yourself. You're no worse than anyone else. Uh, he might say, if you submit to God, you won't have any fun, you know? Or how about, don't worry, hell doesn't really exist. Or you should play now and pay later. Play now and get serious later. I think these are some of the lies that the devil may tell that one along the uh, path. Dr. Peck says the honest person dedicated to truth is constantly examining his or her own motives, behavior, and life. How many of you feel that? Gosh, I do that. I just, I'm constantly evaluating um, my motives, my thoughts, my behavior. What is the Lord asking of me? That's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing to be doing that. And the bottom line, that good soil of a good heart has um, a radical love for truth, even when it takes you to uncomfortable places. Let me give you this example. Um, A very proud husband um, has been speaking harshly and demeaning in demeaning ways to his wife. And she confronts him about it. And he blows up and uh, leaves the room and goes to his study. But then in his study, he, um, he begins to think about it. And because he's got that good soil in his heart because the Lord, he's committed to the Lord and he's committed to truth, after an hour or two, he realizes his wife is exactly right, that he's been proud and he's been harsh and he's been demeaning to her. Well, at that point, he has a decision to make, doesn't he? The decision is, do I just kind of blow it off and act nicer but, but... but don't acknowledge that she's right. Don't ask her forgiveness, but just continue on and try to be nicer. Or do I humble myself and um, risk, you know, the fear is that, that she'll, she'll respect me less, which is a lie. Uh, she'll respect him more if he goes and humbles himself and says, honey, I've been a jerk. My wife has never heard those words out of my mouth, have you, honey? I've been a jerk. I've been proud and arrogant and demeaning to you. Please forgive me. And maybe even will you pray for me that I'll do better in the future? That takes a dedication to truth, doesn't it? Uh, Even if it makes him uncomfortable, his dedication to the truth is more important than his uh, needing or wanting to look good and retain his pride. The last discipline he calls balancing, meaning flexibility, adaptiveness, including the the discipline of letting go sometimes. Uh, This is fascinating. He calls this discipline... The discipline 
uh, excuse, yeah, the discipline required to discipline discipline. Balancing or flexibility, this adaptiveness, is the discipline required to discipline discipline. And he gives the example of his daughter is 14 years old, and he comes home from work, and he decides, you know, my daughter's been asking me to play chess, and I want to get closer. I want to I want to use this evening to get closer to my daughter, and so I'm going to invite her to play chess. And so he invites her to play chess along about 8 o'clock in the evening, and they're having some very competitive games, and uh, 9 o'clock rolls around, which is her bedtime. And she's quite, she's quite uh, disciplined herself about going to bed at 9, and um, so she says, Daddy, would you hurry your moves because... I, I need to go to bed, you know, to be ready for school tomorrow. And he said, well, honey, uh, you know, this game needs to be taken seriously. And uh, slow moves are part of a serious game. I want you to just keep playing for a while. And so he, they play another 15 minutes, and he, he's sensing that she's agitated, getting agitated. And, and after 15 minutes, she said, Dad, again, would you, would you please just hurry your moves a little bit? And he apparently erupted and swore at her and said, if you're going to play chess, you've got to play it seriously, and we're going to keep playing. And uh, they went for another 10 minutes, and then she burst into tears and uh, ran upstairs, and he fumed into his office, and he said it took him two hours to see what happened that he, because he didn't want to see it. He didn't want to see that he let competitiveness overtake his original desire to draw closer to his daughter. And so, of course, he had to go ask her forgiveness. You see, we can become too rigid or too disciplined, too determined to be consistent, and lose any grace that is needed in the moment. I remember a time where my son Nathaniel... uh, scored a soccer goal, but his momentum carried him into the soccer net, and he got his foot caught, his cleat caught in the back of the net. And the the goalie was mad that he'd scored a goal, and even madder that he was in his net. And so he he grabbed Nathaniel and, and threw him out of the net very aggressively. Nathaniel got up and took a swing at him and got kicked out of the game. And so Nathaniel's coming over to the bench, and I'm there on the sidelines, and it felt like the whole world was watching what I would do to Nathaniel when he got to me. And uh, to everyone's shock, I think including my own, I gave him a high five (laughs) instead of a scolding. That was one of those times, you know, why did I do that? I just felt, maybe I felt like it was a time to, to communicate to my son, I don't care about right and wrong right now. I care about you knowing I've got your back and that I'm with you and that I love you no matter what you do. So maybe that's an example of what Dr. Peck is talking about. Interestingly, Spurgeon fashioned on verse 6, which says, that the plant dried up because it had no moisture. And he referred to this lack of moisture in our Christian life as a lack of grace, a lack of having a big heart that easily forgives, 
a heart that sympathizes with others' weaknesses. He did a whole sermon, believe it or not, on that little phrase, because it lacks moisture. You know, I think we've all said in our hearts, especially in our marriage relationships or primary relationships like child to parent or uh, parent to child or uh, uh, worker to boss, we've all said in our hearts at some time, I will only change this much and no more for you. Because if I change beyond this point, I'm not going to be me anymore. Um, What I want to challenge you is that I don't think that's true. I think we are incredibly adaptable, and we can love way beyond the points that we think we can. So as a counselor, I would often have clients come in. A couple would come in, and they'd be sharing their issue. And often it was the man who said, well, that's just the way I am, counselor. Like, you know, make me. In other words, I'm not going to change. I'm not willing to change uh, or adapt. And so I would have to challenge them along that line. So when I was in the United Arab Emirates, we ministered to a doctor couple, and the husband was saying to the wife um, that he needed more empathy from her. She was very analytical and uh, very kind of black and white and well, you should have done this, you know. If, if you had this problem, you should have done this. And he was looking for a little more warmth, a little more sympathy. And, and as I challenged her on that, she said, I mean, in a very playful and fun way, she said, well, my dad was like that. He just was very, I'm like my dad, and I like who I am. And I, I like my personality the way it is. I feel connected to my dad being this way. I don't really want to change that way. And so I challenged her that she could walk in greater love if she were willing to consider uh, bringing that to her personality. And would, would she really be disconnected from her dad? I don't think so. So my challenge in bringing these examples up is that we need that flexibility. We need that adaptability We need that ability to let something go sometimes. Any of you have problems letting things go sometimes? (laughs) We're nearing the end now. As we look at these four disciplines described by Dr. Peck, we can see striking similarities with the good soil in verse 15. Um, The reality... Reality as it is, that we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. It bears fruit, this good soil. It takes responsibility for the gospel and responsibility for, am I growing in the gospel? Am I further developed in the Lord and in my walk of love than I was, you know, a year ago? It holds the word fast. It's not swayed by difficulties, temptations, or suffering, but endures pain now for future reward. And it has sufficient moisture. It's willing to adapt and flex and forgive in order to dispense grace in life, even when it's undeserved. So I want to close by asking you, in what areas 
Is God asking you or coaching you or prompting you to grow in greater discipline? Where do you need greater self-control in order to walk in greater love? I think of this little girl, where do you need to stand up on the inside and try again to master that thing that so many times has eluded you? I was talking with Rebecca and Dallas before the service, and we were talking about how we used to smoke and how we quit smoking. And for Rebecca, it was a, the Lord led her to make, just set a day, and when she got to that day, she stopped cold turkey. For me, it was throwing packs of cigarettes out the window, then bumming from friends till they hated me, then buying another pack and throwing it out the window again. It took a long time. It was a tough one. But God helped me, and I overcame it. But it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's trying to have a consistent quiet time in the morning. Maybe it's Maybe you struggle with like a critical spirit and words. Maybe you want to end gossip or speaking harshly about others. Maybe it's overcoming anger in your heart. Maybe there's a need to be grateful and say thank you more. Maybe you want to overcome lust or pornography or drinking or smoking. Maybe you have difficulty letting go of offenses. That's a, that's a hard one for people who are there, but the Lord will give you the victory. Maybe you have a greater need to forgive easily or an increased willingness to adapt to your spouse. Laziness, good time management. Maybe you're going through a shaking like never before, and I just want to encourage you your root will hold. Your root in the Lord. All the investment you've made over the years with the Lord, it will hold. Let me remind you that God is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. If that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he can and will quicken your mortal body. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Oh my gosh. Isaiah 61.3 says, They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I know that if you keep fighting, you will win. If you keep fighting, whatever that lack of discipline is, you will win. How do I know that? Verses like this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May God bless you in your quest for discipline, for without discipline there is no love. One more quick example.
If I could coach young men in marriage, what's the one thing they could do or what, what would be a significant thing they could do to walk out this message? It would be when your wife asks you to do something, do it immediately. Don't wait for the commercial. Don't, you know, you don't have to see the end of the game. Just go do it. And over time, after a few months of that, she'll say, oh, honey, you don't have to do it now. And then you're where you wanted to be, right? <laughs> so, uh, but that takes discipline, doesn't it? It takes discipline to set aside your own agenda for the next 30 seconds or five minutes and do what someone else asks. If you would like just a quick prayer for the area you're struggling with, that's just between you and the Lord. Would you stand with me and I will uh, pray against spray cheese in a can (laughs) and uh, whatever else there is. Lord, I thank you so much for the good hearts of my brothers and sisters. I thank you so much for the fact that, as Jim says so often, we're in it together. We're growing together, we're learning together, and this morning, Lord, you have directed our attention to the fact that if we want to grow in love, we've got to grow more disciplined with ourselves. And so, Father, we ask you to give us greater success, greater determination. We pray that you would remove the poisons from the bad soil in our hearts and that you would Give us fertilizer and nutrients from your Holy Spirit that would allow us to walk deeply with you and love well and love deeply. Thank you, Lord, that your scriptures talk about being perfected in love. Thank you that that's your agenda in our hearts or part of your agenda, a big part. So help us to walk as you walked. Help us to walk in love. Help us to identify where it is you want us to focus our prayers and our determination and our uh, behavioral practices to be more disciplined. We love you, Lord, and we give you all the glory. Thank you that you are preparing us for eternity. Thank you for Bob, who, as Bill said, has run the race and finished, crossed the finish line, Lord, and has that crown of righteousness. We just praise you so much for each other as good examples of discipline and love and moving forward in faith. We know we're under construction, Lord, but we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.